we are going to continue in our series on the Holy Spirit. And I know over the last couple, uh, couple weeks, uh, we have covered a lot, of, a lot of ground. It's been a lot of content. But um, it was very purposeful and intentional in that because I want to get into more of the nuanced uh, realities of the Spirit and the Scriptures. And so the first week, we considered the personhood of the Spirit, that we want to begin with the revelation that Jesus gives us of the Helper, the Comforter, the Spirit's activity in the Scriptures is not, uh, is not the wielding of, of force or energy, but is, is one of the persons of the Godhead uh, who deserves our total surrender and submission, that being filled with the Spirit is not us getting more of the Spirit, but it is the Spirit actually having more control of us, uh, bringing greater and greater revelation to the person of Christ uh, in our lives and through our lives. Uh, last week, we considered the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and saw that the, the activity of the Spirit in the Old Testament, although there is, there is some ambiguity um, in the personhood of the Spirit in the Old Testament, which comes into greater focus and clarity uh, as we come into the ministry of Jesus and his revelation and then further into the epistles, uh, the Old Testament still reveals the, the work that the Holy Spirit is continuing to do today, which is the Spirit as a creative um, spirit, the spirit as an anointing spirit or an empowering spirit, and the spirit as a prophetic spirit. Uh, and he continues to be those things today. Uh, it's just that the revelation of the spirit is to point us to the final word of the Father, which is the Son himself. So what I want us to consider today uh, is specifically the witness of the Holy Spirit or the mission of the Spirit. And we're going to actually focus in on one particular passage, and that is John chapter 16, uh, verses 7 through 14. There's a lot about the Spirit's witness in the book of Acts, but we're beginning the book of Acts in September. So um, I want to focus in on another very explicit text that actually declares to us the Spirit's mission in the world. Uh, the Upper Room Discourse, as it's often called, uh, John chapter 13, actually all the way through 17, uh, is uh, one of the great emphasis upon Jesus' teachings the night of his betrayal was on the coming Holy Spirit or the, or the coming paraclete, uh, which is the counselor or the teacher or even the word comforter. But what I want us to see is that the comforter, the spirit, does not come in order to allow us to be comfortable. But what the comforter comes to do is to make us missionaries. That is that he sends us out into the world, into a very dangerous world, actually, into a world that is hostile toward, toward the gospel. And he comforts us as we actually enter into that work. Uh, he doesn't save us for the purpose of keeping us safe and cloistered from the difficulties and the challenges that we'll face in a world that actually does not believe in Christ, but he comforts us as we go out and become vehicles or, or conduits by which Christ can be made known uh, to the world. And I would, I would say this in regards to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's activity, although the primary means by which God does his work on earth is through the church, that is the primary, that doesn't mean that's the only way in which God works in his earth. And I would say that if the church is failing in her mission, God will reach and accomplish his mission and goals however he sees fit. And I will consider that uh, in, in a few moments. So if you will, turn with me to John chapter 16, and we'll look at just verses 7 through 14, and we're going to consider the threefold conviction of the Holy Spirit right now. Um, all right, so Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's interesting, Jesus 
is telling them that he's going away. And he says, for if I did not go away, the helper will not come to you. What was one of the things that Jesus constantly promised? What, was, what did he promise in the Great Commission? He said, go into all the nations. I want you to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have taught you. And lo, I am what? With you always. How is Jesus with us if here he tells us that he is going uh, back to the Father? Uh, this is the work of the Spirit. He sends his Spirit. He says, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will, and I think this is interesting, he's coming to us. So the work is actually in us and through us. But what is it that he does? What is his mission? What is his ministry? What is the witness of the Spirit? He will convict and that word is important. It can be convict, it can be convince, it can be expose. Uh, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And to come into the light means that the dark, what's in the darkness is what? Revealed, exposed. The truth of who God is exposes uh, the lies of who we think we are. Uh, and so he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And he goes on to say, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. I feel like that's a constant conversation that my wife and my kids have to have with me. You have many things to say and we cannot bear them. Uh, <laughs> when the spirit of truth comes, curse when you have been given the gift of monologue. Uh, he will guide you into all truth. I love that. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. What did Jesus say about himself in the beginning of this discourse? I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. And so the spirit is going to continually reveal the very person of Jesus to us. He will guide us into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. Notice, he's not in the business of pointing to himself. When the Spirit fills someone, it immediately brings them into a connection with the living Christ. He is the shy one in the Trinity. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So when we take this teaching the center of it is this convicting work of the Holy Spirit in the world, how the Spirit works amongst humanity, and what does the Spirit come to do? He convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Bruce Milne, in his book on uh, his commentary on the Gospel of John, said these three ideas, sin, righteousness, and judgment, belong to the common stock of ethical concepts which jostle in today's pluralistic society. In the prevailing relativistic atmosphere, ethical absolutes are dismissed. People claim the right to determine for themselves what will count as sin, what will be their standard of righteousness, and where judgment has or has not been properly expressed. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit's witness, challenges this ethical autonomy uncovers the rebellion against God which underlies it and confronts the world with the true character of sin, the true meaning of righteousness, and the true place of judgment. Through the Spirit of God, the human heart is summoned to repentance and then offered the salvation which is life indeed. 
It's a powerful statement in regards to this particular text because here it is. The Spirit's witness through our lives brings us into direct conflict with the world as it is today. The challenge for us is that the comforter comes to actually push us into uncomfortable situations. Now, I think that it's easy to misinterpret this text. This text is not saying that the role of the believer empowered by the Spirit is to go out into the world and tell everyone and to point out and uncover all of their horrible sins. I had a conversation with a man who is a open-air preacher, and we actually got into, I wouldn't say a debate, but uh, an I would say, a, um, a verbal disagreement around the role of witness and what witness actually is. And his idea of witness is that the believer, uh, that the empowerment of the believer means that we are to go out and we are to point out and uncover the reality of people's sins that they might repent and turn to Christ. But it's done in this fierce way, like he goes to bars and yells at people as they come out of the bar and, and points out very, he's very sin-specific. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, when you get sin-specific, you actually enter into the world of what I call selective sanctification because there are so many sins that we're not even aware of. You think you were like, that person's doing this. I promise you, whatever they're doing, you're doing something just as bad. You just don't know it yet. Uh, and so this is not what the witness of the Holy Spirit is. The witness of the Spirit is that they will know you are my disciples, Jesus said in John chapter 13, by your love for one another. When we become filled by the Holy Spirit, when we become empowered by the Spirit, the Spirit makes known to the world the reality, the love of Christ. It is the love of Christ, the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. We don't need to tell people um, how, they're, how they're breaking the law of God. People innately know that they are fundamentally messed up. And so what I want us to consider is what does this threefold conviction mean then? What are we supposed to be witnessing to? What is it that we're supposed to be pointing out? How do we actually point people to the living Christ? And this is not an attempt to actually put under the rug the very reality, the very real reality of sin. Uh, if anything, I think that we need to understand the depth of what Jesus is saying here because what he states is something very specific, a very real outcome for those that would reject the gospel, that there is a, wrong, a right and a wrong answer for human existence. Uh, and we need not be afraid of that. In a time in which truth has been turned upside down on its head and is determined by feelings, not by facts, uh, we have to ask the question uh, that Pilate asked of Jesus the day of his crucifixion, what is truth? Except we have to do what, we have to actually not do what Pilate did, which is walk away before Jesus gives us the answer. Remember that part? Pilate says, what is truth? And then it says he walked away. Well, why'd you ask the question if you don't want the answer? But that's the problem is that we often, like Pilate, don't want the answer. So what does he begin with? He says, listen, when the Spirit comes, when the Helper, the Holy Spirit comes, he will, concerning sin, convict the world of sin. And he says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So number one, the Holy Spirit's convicting the world of sin. And specifically, he is convicting the world of the fact of unbelief. That the sin that the Spirit comes to convict us of, and this is the thing, is that the, Jesus uses the singular, not the plural. It's not sins. 
plural, but it's the singular reality of what sin at its essence is. And that sin at its essence is a rebellion against God's rule over our lives. Jesus comes and his very presence was a revelation of man's rebellion against God's rule. The autonomy that we take upon ourselves, what we are, what the Spirit comes to convict us of, and I remember what it was like when I became convinced of the person of Jesus and convicted by the Spirit, is the Spirit showed me that I was an absolute rebel, rebelling against God's rule, rejecting his gospel, uh, living according. The sins that came out of that rebellion were so many uh, and so diverse that even after I got saved, there were things that I didn't even know were sins that became a revelation of how I was breaking God's law and actually fighting against God's ethics. The first thing that he reveals to the human heart is the reality that we have rebelled against God's rule, that there is a lack of submission and unwillingness to actually come under his control. And so here we have it in John 15, 22. If I had had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. The very person of Jesus becomes a revelation of our rebellion. Hebrews 3.12 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Notice, an evil heart of unbelief. This is the essence of sin. All of sin actually flows out of a heart that refuses to acknowledge God's authority over our lives. The Spirit comes to reveal the person of Jesus. This is his witness. In doing so, it brings about a conviction of our unbelief. The heart was created in man for the purpose of fellowship, intimacy with God. In fact, it says in Mark chapter 7, verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders. Notice that it becomes the root of the problem, and sin is what turned the heart from the unseen to the seen. Our worship was actually turned, when we, we became foolish and darkened, and it says that we worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And this is the very reality in which the Spirit comes. The Spirit comes to bring revelation of Jesus, but he cannot bring revelation of Jesus without showing us the rebellion of our heart. I think that this is important for us to understand that people are shown that they are wrong with their moralistic ideas of sin. Sin is essentially the refusal to commit ourselves to Christ. And so what I want to show you is that the conviction of the Holy Spirit very real conviction of the Holy Spirit uh, can, uh, excuse me, a real conviction of sin can only come from the Holy Spirit because the Spirit comes to reveal to us the need for Christ. And this is why Jesus, if you guys actually thought about, and we considered this when we were going through the Gospel of Matthew, of what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit actually is. And what the spirit, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is, uh, in, it's funny, Christians ask me all the time, they're like, I think I blaspheme, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? First of all, you wouldn't be saying that to me if you had. Uh, because a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is actually the Spirit comes to reveal Jesus. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to willingly reject that which you know to be true. Those enemies of Christ were those who knew that he was doing work by the hand of God, but he so threatened their position in life that they willfully rejected him. And he says, he says listen, the sins against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but a sin against the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit came to reveal 
the authority, and the person of Christ. And so for us, the sin that becomes the unforgivable sin is the, is the only sin that can't be forgiven, which is the only, the only cure uh, that, that is necessary for, for actual life and existence, which is if you're really sick and there's one cure for you and you reject that cure, then how can there be any hope for being healed? And Jesus is the cure for our sickness, for the fundamental brokenness of the human heart. We can reject sin all day long, but we're foolish to recognize uh, how desperately we need cleansing, how desperately we need forgiveness. I was actually struck by this uh, in watching an interview, uh, and all the more reason why we should actually honor uh, the scriptures when it tells us that we're to pray for our leaders. Uh, I I, I was watching an interview with Donald Trump uh, and I don't bring this up uh, to, uh, to paint a negative picture. I bring this up to show you uh, the very false ideas that people have about God. He was asked by a Christian leader when he was running for president uh, because he was being touted by many evangelicals as the great hope. Uh, and, and one of the things that was presented was that he was actually a true born-again believer. Now, God knows the hearts of people, and it is not our place to basically determine who's saved and who's not saved. But there are some fundamental, it says that you will know them by their fruit. And one of the things that is a revelation of real understanding of the gospel is a recognition of how desperately we need forgiveness. That the Spirit's first convicting work is the revelation that we are a rebellion against God and need forgiveness. And when he was asked about his personal relationship with God, he goes, oh, it's great. It's good. It's good. Real close with him. I think he said something like that. I'm not joking. And then he said, and then they're like, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? And he goes, hmm, I don't think so. Nope. Yeah, not that I'm aware of. Sorry, Trump. That's just a big, ah, that's just a wrong answer. <laughs> that's a wrong answer. That you, don't, you fundamentally don't understand the essence of the gospel. The essence of the gospel is that man is incapable of saving himself, that he functions in unbelief, and that unbelief has actually determined him for a trajectory toward ultimate and final separation from God. But God in his love and his mercy has come and entered into that rebellion, that he took it into himself, that the judge became the judged on our behalf. For anyone to actually say, I never needed forgiveness, fundamentally does not understand the gospel, nor has come under the full conviction of the Holy Spirit. The conviction of the Holy Spirit produces a desperate need. If you have never asked for forgiveness, then you have never come into contact with the living Christ. Because the living Christ, the kindness of God, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. The Spirit comes to reveal to us what we have done and how desperately we need to be forgiven. And this is why he goes on to say this. Remember, in Acts chapter 2, verse 36 and 37, you see the, at Pentecost, and we'll deal with this in great depth when we begin to teach through the book of Acts, but Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when he preaches the gospel, what is the outcome of the preaching? He tells them that this Jesus that you just crucified has been resurrected from the dead, has proven himself to be God, the Son of God, and he is Lord of lords and the King of kings. And what happens to the people? It says, therefore, let all of Israel know 
assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And now when they heard this, here is the work of the Spirit. It's the witness of the gospel. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter and the rest of the apostles, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? To, be, to come into contact with the living Christ is to be confronted with a desperate need for a new heart. And this is why the Holy Spirit doesn't just simply convict us of sin and leave us in our conviction. He's not about producing guilt. He's actually about bringing restoration and redemption and reconciliation. And I think that this is so powerful. The Holy Spirit, secondly, convicts the world of righteousness. And this isn't where you think it would go. He says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So the first is a reality of the, he's declared, the Spirit declares the fact of human unbelief. The second is he de declares the fact of Christ's ascension. The Spirit's primary work is to bring to remembrance the things that Jesus has said, to point us to what Jesus has done. The Spirit says, speaks nothing of his own authority, but all that is given to him he declares to us, just as Jesus never spoke on his own authority, but declared all that the Father had revealed to him. And so we have this reality is that the Spirit's work the Spirit brings about an awareness of the truth of what the gospel is about. And so what, what does it mean when it says concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer? What does his departure have to do with righteousness? Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Why did Jesus need to go away? That what he is looking for, what he is looking at is that notice Jesus in his final teaching, he is not saying, I'm going to die. He says, I'm going way, I'm going back to my father. In fact, in the high priestly prayer of John 17, he says, I am ready to have the glory with, with which I once had with you. I'm ready to have that restored. Jesus is already looking through his death to his resurrection and ultimately his ascension as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And what, he, what we recognize is that the death of Christ uh, is what qualifies us for the life that he lived, but his resurrection from the dead is the Father's stamp approval upon that finished work. And what we need to understand is that here, concerning righteousness, is that the Spirit, as he convicts us of our unbelief, he reveals to us the person of Jesus and the, and the righteousness that we cannot obtain in our own effort. And what he reveals to us actually is the kindness of God and his willingness to actually, this is what's so powerful. What does 2 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 21 say? For our sake he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. The Spirit convicts the world of its unbelief, convinces the world of its need for a righteousness that is, that is not something that we can accomplish in our own ability. We have no longer the right. The Spirit convicts us and shows us that we do not have the right to determine what is right and what is wrong, but that God himself is the one who determines our reality. And that through the work of Christ, as the Spirit reveals the person of Jesus, he shows us the opportunity, the realization that his righteousness is available to us. He convicts the world of righteousness by showing us what righteous living is all about through the person of Christ. 
It is to your advantage I go away because Jesus is our high priest. He is, as it says in Hebrews, the trailblazer or the bridge builder. He is our advocate. Romans 3, 21 through 22 says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus to all and on all who believe. The spirit doesn't leave us in a place of brokenness for our unbelief, but immediately that conviction turns to the recognition, the conviction and convincing of the human heart to cast themselves in total dependence upon the person of Christ. When I first got saved, that was one of the most powerful realities for me was when I came to the gospels, what God convicted me of by his spirit was not all the little things I was doing wrong. He convicted me of the rebellion that I had actually built against him by living life according to my ways, uh, refusing to accept his authority in my life. But when I accepted Christ, accepted his his ruling over my life, that unbelief is deserving of damnation, he immediately presented to me what convicted me even more than the conviction of my sin was the conviction that came from his love. The revelation that in spite of my unbelief, that God through the person of Jesus actually entered into that broken reality of mine and made it his own. And nothing brought more conviction and cutting to the heart than the reality that Jesus Christ actually entered into my rebellion, owned it so fully, dealt with it so completely that through his resurrection, because he has gone to the Father, I can actually find total and absolute forgiveness and a completely new standing. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I will say that again and again and again. The realization that when Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. The argument that I got in with the, with the man who goes out and preaches and tells, tells different groups of people, focusing on their very specific sins, uh, you will know them by their fruit. And I think that the, that the realization is that when Jesus is lifted up and when the cross is brought before people, if people come under the submission of Christ, truly lay down their lives, the cross will then begin to work itself out into the details and the nuances of our lives. It's not get rid of this particular problem and then God will forgive you. It's that God has already forgiven you in Jesus. How will you respond to his yes? That's the question. Third, the Holy Spirit convinces or convicts the world of judgment. Once again, what is this saying? Is this saying that when he comes, he will convict the world of judgment? That is that he will, he will bring judgment on the world? There is a final judgment that is coming. But here he says something interesting. In verse 11, he says, concerning judgment, and then he connects it with an interesting thought, because the ruler of this world is judged. The power of the witness of the Spirit is that the Spirit reveals man's desperate need for God and reveals the ugliness of the sin of unbelief. He reveals the reality of the person of Jesus and his willingness to take that sin into himself and to impart to us a righteousness that we cannot produce. And then he reveals to us the ultimate reality of judgment is that we can fully trust Christ because he himself bore judgment fully, that the devil and sin and death was completely judged on the cross and defeated. 
So when he says the Spirit convinces the world of judgment or convicts the world of judgment, he was saying, listen, concerning judgment, the ruler of this world is judged. This is a judgment that has been dealt with. The Spirit is inviting us into life. The judge has been judged on our behalf. And it's interesting because when Jesus was dealing with his enemies, uh, with those that actually would not believe in him, he says, listen, he, he said, you're not, you're not children of Abraham. He goes, you're children of your father, the devil. And what the Spirit does is it reveals to us that we definitely need to pick sides, that the devil has already been judged and defeated. And therefore, we can enter into true freedom. The gospel, if it's a gospel of anything, is a gospel of liberation. Satan may be alive and well and working in, his, in the world against, against God's kingdom and God's people, but the fact is, is that he is a defeated foe, and his time is short. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, it says, O death, where is your sting, O Hades? Where is your victory? Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. If we are in Christ, then Satan or death has nothing in us. What the Spirit convicts us of is this reality that judgment has been dealt with. So why do I want to stay in a judgment that has been taken care of through Christ. Why don't I enter into life? The Spirit is a Spirit that draws people to Christ. The conviction is not to push us away. The conviction is to bring us in, to convince us that Jesus is everything that he said he is. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but those, those who receive it is life, and it is life abundant. So what do we have to do with this? So the question, uh, before I jump into the Holy Spirit convicting the world through us, I wanna just point out something that, that we can't bottle up the Spirit into some sort of neat theological box. Uh, some will say the Spirit only works through the church. Well, that's just simply not true. The church is the primary way in which the Spirit works, but God's Spirit will convict the world, and the Spirit is in the world convincing and convicting the people and drawing them to Jesus. And I would just share one story. Uh, a, a friend I have, I've shared this before, but uh, this young woman I met, her name's Nestoron, and her husband, they're from um, Tehran, and she, this is an example of how the Spirit is working in the world today outside of the norms of what is our common Christian experience. And this is happening all over in places where the gospel is illegal and not where Christians can't get in. But Nestoron was taking a shower one day, good Muslim girl, never heard the gospel in her life, but she was always drawn to the prophet Jesus. And while she was taking a shower, she hears a voice, and I asked her, I'm like, was it an audible voice? And she goes, it wasn't audible, but it wasn't in my head. I'm like, I don't know what that means, but it sounds supernatural. Uh, and she said, she said the voice told her to repent of her sins and that the blood would cleanse her. And she didn't understand what that meant because she'd never heard the gospel. So she went to her imam and asked him about it. She said, I heard a voice. I think a prophet spoke to me. Um, while I was taking a shower, and he's like, what did he say? And she told him, and he goes, oh, that's the prophet Jesus, only he talks that way. <laughs> so she goes home, 
she goes home, and unbeknownst to her, her sister had gotten saved through the witness of a missionary in Europe. Her sister was at college in Europe, and she had gone over the weekend to some Christian, I think it was like a YWAM gathering, and, and there a person walked up to, to her sister and said, hey, the Lord just told me you're supposed to fly home and share the gospel with your family. Here's the money for your flight. She never even met this person in her life. She takes the money, she buys a ticket, flies home. When she shows up, her mom answers the door and she takes her in to Nestron's room. And when Nestron said, when her sister opened the door, she said to her, you're here to tell me about Jesus. I believe in him. And so the sister explains the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Notice that the story is not devoid of the, of the scripture's influence upon a fuller and more robust understanding, but the spirit of God is working outside of the norms of normal witness. And here, so, they, so the mom and the sister both give their life to Jesus. The dad is skeptical. A month later, her dad has a dream that, and Jesus appears to him in the dream and tells, and tells him to listen to his wife and daughters that, that it's truth. And when his dad wakes up, he shares with them, repents, receives Christ. The whole family's born again. Nestron said that she asked her dad what, um, what Jesus was dressed like. And he said he was wearing a robe. And she said, was it white? And he goes, no, it wasn't white. She's like, well, what color was it? Like, he goes, it doesn't exist. It was bright. That's all I can say. It's just fascinating. So that's outside of, that blows my mind. That story blows my mind. The power of the gospel, uh, to, to, that the spirit is alive and well and is unpredictable and he is not to be tamed, he is to be submitted to. He's not to be relegated to the scriptures alone, he's not relegated to the church alone, but he does primarily work through the church. My point of that story is to say that God will fulfill his plans and purposes with or without us, but I want it to be with us. And so let's consider what he does to the church because this is what Jesus says in 12 through 14 in closing. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. Notice, we don't sit back and watch the spirit work we surrender to the Spirit's work through us. The Spirit, we shouldn't be sitting back hoping that every story, because that story of Nestron, that's probably not how anyone in this room got saved, okay? The, the, the reality, the likelihood is the majority of you came to faith through the, through the faithful preaching of the gospel for those of you that have been born again. From the proclamation of truth, for it is, his, how shall they hear if there is no preacher to preach? Even with Nestoron, God still sent her sister to preach the word, to open up the truth of what she was experiencing supernaturally. And I think that we need to understand that the spirit as a comforter doesn't allow us to be comfortable, cloistered away from the world, but he wants to bring us out. The spirit pushes us like a violent wind into a dangerous world to declare the truth of who Jesus is without fear. And what I want you guys to notice is that in the early church, what you did not see, you did not see the Christians praying for the lost. I'm not saying that they didn't. It's just not recorded. What you do see them praying for is not the lost, but the boldness to preach to the lost. 
we've turned it into a cop-out. I'm going to pray for my dad who's saved, but please, God, don't make me tell him about you. I'm going to pray for my, for my coworker, but please, Lord, don't make me open my mouth. And the question that I would have for you is that, is the, is the reality of Jesus, is it, is it a conviction to others when they're around you? Do they sense something in you? I read the story, actually, of, um, which evangelist was it, who wrote, uh, it's not Murray, yeah, it's one of the revivalist preachers. I can't remember which one. I'll think of it in a second. But anyway, I know this story of this revivalist preacher who actually went into a factory, and his life was so marked by holiness that when he walked into the room, the, uh, the people that were working in the factory became agitated by his presence without him saying anything. The idea, this is something that we have lost. Oh, it's Charles Finney, Charles Finney. Uh, it was a New York factory. He was invited to by the owner of the factory who had gotten saved at one of his, at one of his uh, evangelism meetings. Uh, a what he did put on was revival meetings. And he walks in the factory and like women began to cry just by him being in the room. And the crazy, we're like, that's crazy. That, how can that happen? You know, one of the things that we have lost our sense of is the necessity of anointing. That we think like, oh, you go to seminary and you just should be able to go get a job at a church because you went through an education. Where's the need for anointing today? Where's the call for us to be so yielded to the spirit that he has the ability to empower us for the purpose of doing the work of the ministry? Seminary is great. Anointing is even better and actually makes seminary useful. And I think that this is the reality that we need to understand today is that the Spirit wants to do a supernatural work through us. He wants to make Jesus known through our lives. Jesus said the Spirit will guide us into all truth. He will bring to remembrance. Now, here's the thing that I want you to understand. Tozer said something fascinating in his um, book, The Incredible Christian. He, said, he says something I disagree with and then something I fully agree with. He said the primary work of the Holy Spirit is not empowering for witness. I disagree with that statement. He says, though this is not to be disregarded, but the restoration of the lost soul, he argues, is the most important element that the Spirit comes to do, to intimate fellowship with God through the washing of regeneration. He then goes on to illumine the newborn soul with brighter rays from the face of Christ and leads the willing heart into the depths and heights of divine knowledge and communion. Where I disagree with Tozer is that Tozer was a modern mystic. And so for him, that personal intimacy with Jesus was the most important aspect of the Christian life and the, and the saving work of the Holy Spirit. But the fact is, is that that's just simply not what the Scripture declares. And I would argue that Tozer is absolutely right that the Spirit comes to restore communion and intimacy with the living God and reveal to us the beauty of Jesus. But I don't think we need to separate that intimacy from witness because real witness comes out of real intimacy. And so what I think that we need to understand is that the Spirit actually comes to restore to us communion with the Father, but when that communion is real, it actually makes us convincing and compelling and convicting to the world in which we come into contact with. So lots of information about God, a right understanding of Bible, orthodoxy, all that stuff has its place, but it cannot actually create the conviction that can only come when a person is totally yielded to the Spirit's influence and wooing over our lives, drawing us into communion with the Father, by which we can then, like Moses, step out before the people and have the light of Christ reflected off of us.
And I think that this is what we see in Acts. In closing, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They were anointed. They were empowered. There was something fundamentally different about everything they said after Pentecost. Everything they did, great grace was upon all of them, it declares. I close with this quote from N.T. Wright, I think is a powerful depiction of what the Spirit comes to do in his ministry of witness through our lives. Let's put it like this. The whole point about Pentecost was that the disciples up till then hiding away, were hiding away in an upper room, were blown out onto the street by the rushing mighty wind to speak the truth of God in Christ in public and to do so boldly and unashamed. If Pentecost is simply all about us having new private religious experiences, however exciting and dramatic, we are turning Christianity into a private hobby. The gospel of Jesus Christ is nothing if it is not public truth, issuing a costly and dangerous challenge to the world's conceptions of truth. Are we listening to the Holy Spirit Are we unobstructed channels by which the person of Jesus is made known through our lives to a city that desperately needs to know his power, his conviction, his salvation, his love, a love that saves and seeks and saves that which is lost? Is he doing that through you? Amen?